This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. Teaching is hard. You know, I know that might be a shocking revelation, but I mean it. I tutor high school students, and after teaching a full class for just a few months, I made the choice to stick with one-on-one. Today, more than most times, it is abundantly clear that the people who dedicate themselves to leading our classrooms day after day deserve the absolute best. This week's teller, Jared Bellet, spent years at the front of Massachusetts English classes. In this story, join Jared as he recalls the early days of that part of his career and how he learned to honestly be himself, a lesson that proved invaluable for both him and his students. Recorded live in September 2021, Second Story is proud to present Mr. Bellet and a Room Full of Kids. It is 7.35 in the morning and I am wearing a yellow plaid shirt and navy tie, all of which is strange because I am not a morning person. I hate wearing ties and quite frankly, yellow is a questionable color on me. I am standing shoulder to shoulder with the teachers of Cusp Middle School in Fall River, Massachusetts. In my hand is a crumpled piece of paper, the roster for my first period class. In front of me, 150 eighth graders who, although it is only the first hour of the first day of school, already seem to be completely over it. Each teacher has been instructed to step forward and read their roster aloud so that when the students hear themselves called, they might stand up from their seat and form a line to be walked to class. Mr. Bella, Nancy Mullen, the veteran school principal of 20 years, nods for me to step forward. Mr. Bella, <laughs> who thought this was a good idea? I am. 22 years old. I grew up my beard over the summer in an attempt to add a sense of gravitas, but it barely hides my baby face. I have no idea what I want to do with my life, but I know that I am by no means ready to be a mister. Mr. Bella, I fidget with my tie, clear my throat, and begin talking. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mr. Bella. If you hear your name, go ahead and stand up and make a line at the door without realizing my voice has dropped by a full octave. Who is this person, I wonder, taken aback by this newfound vocal resonance? I look down at my roster and prepare to read the list. Something to know about Fall River is that the city is home to the largest Portuguese population in the United States. This means the city is home to rich traditions and delicious foods and familial names, which as a non-Portuguese speaker are completely unfamiliar to my tongue. Brianna Albuquerque, a girl stands up and loudly rolls her eyes. It's Albuquerque. Snickers erupt from the audience. I feel my cheeks flush red hot. Oh, I'm sorry. I mumble. In an attempt to save face, I overcorrect, leaning hard into eight years of Spanish classes. I do my best to pronounce each R and uh, aggressively hit each accent. Alex Andandre, Christopher Botteo, Each name I pronounce is wrong in a new and unexpected way. The snickering picks up in its intensity. By the time I reach the stretch of my roster that contains the four Sousas in my class, Amber, Jesenia, Taryn, and Brendan, none of whom are related, Nancy Mullen has had to step in and calm everyone down. 
I finish reading my roster aloud, cheeks still hot and making sure to avoid their disappointed eyes, walk to the students waiting for me at the door. I never thought I would become a teacher. My mom worked with kids, my sister worked with kids, but I hadn't figured out exactly who I was yet. Have you ever considered being a drama teacher? Chantel, a friend once asked while perusing treats at a Providence bakery. Absolutely not, I responded. Teachers become teachers because that is what they are destined to do. But Jared, you love working with kids. You completely lose your shit every time you see a baby stroll down the street. Chantel, teachers are confident and sure of themselves and they know what they are doing. No one wants a teacher who doesn't even know what muffin they're trying to buy. I thought you said you wanted blueberry. I did, but now maybe I want this banana nut one. This is what I'm saying. I can't even trust myself to order a $2 muffin. Why should someone trust me to pass on the secrets of the universe? Chantel rolls her eyes and walks away. See, this is that dramatic Pisces ass nonsense, secrets of the universe, shaking my damn head. You care too much. You need to calm yourself down because you know it ain't that deep. The leaves on the trees outside have started to turn red and orange and yellow. And inside of room 242, the room in which I teach, students are reading Three Cups of Tea, a memoir by Greg Mortensen detailing his journey from nurse to mountain climber to global humanitarian. Mortensen's book may have dominated the New York Times' bestseller list for four years, but my students want absolutely nothing to do with it. And I don't blame them. Mortensen's writing is bland and boring. And Mr. Bellot, whose voice still feels alien in my mouth, is grappling with what it means to be a good teacher. Hmm. Don't smile until June. Mike Smet, the mentor teacher who I have been paired with lectures. If you smile, the kids will take advantage of you. Don't crack jokes. Don't try to be funny. This advice doesn't sit well with me. Pretending to be someone who I am not hasn't helped me become a better teacher and the no smile rule doesn't seem to make the experience of my students any more enjoyable as evidenced by Brendan Souza's frustrated outburst, the fallout of which I am actively attempting to navigate. Brendan, you need to join your group and get to work. My voice lacks any empathy. I shudder. I'm not gonna work with this fucking group. They don't do any work. Brendan, that is not how we use language in this room. This is how I always talk and I'm not working with that fucking group. Then you can leave class and head down to the office. I'm not dealing with this. Brendan gets up and storms out of the room, making sure to let the door slam shut behind him. The rest of the class looks at me expectantly. I feel hot in my face. I can't tell if it is out of anger or embarrassment. In my head, I hear Mike Smith's voice. You have to be tough with them. That is the only way to gain their respect. Get back to work, everyone, I snap. Anything you don't finish in class will just become homework. It is Wednesday afternoon, and I am sitting in silence during my daily prep period. Outside of the windows, the sun has begun to set and fluffy white snow is falling softly from the sky. It would benefit me to spend this time writing lesson plans for Warriors Don't Cry, a copy of which I'm holding in my hands, but these prep periods are the single hour of the school day where I don't have to pretend to be a version of myself that I'm not. During these quiet moments, I like to look out of the window. Room 242 has an absolutely stunning view of the Taunton River and Braga Bridge. It's faded blue steel columns and six lanes of traffic stretching out over a mile of choppy water that at least once a week, my students claim to see pods of dolphins patrolling. 
four months into the school year, though, and I have never seen the dolphins they excitedly blabber about. They all swear to me, though, that it's true that the dolphins migrate up and down the river to and from their home in Mount Hope Bay. That's outrageous, I tell them. There is absolutely no way there are dolphins in Fall River. But there are, Mr. Bella. We swear it. We've seen them. You just aren't looking right. The thing about these first four months of teaching, though, is that it always kind of feels like I'm just not looking right, which is frustrating. The voice of Mike Smet lurks constantly in the back of my head. Don't smile until June. Turning away from the winter darkness outside, I carelessly toss the book I am holding towards an empty desk where it lands with a loud and defeated thud. There are no dolphins in Fall River, I muttered to myself and sit down to start lesson planning. Rain bats against the windows outside. Another gloomy and gray spring day in New England. The bell rings as 29 14-year-olds shuffle inside room 242. Okay, today we are going to continue to identify examples of literal language in the first 10 pages of Fahrenheit 451. Remember, literal language uses language defined by its primary meaning. I gesture towards Brianna. For example, Brianna, you are literally wearing a gray shirt. Brianna looks down at her shirt, nodding, and then with a smirk on her face, shoots back, right, or Mr. Bella, you are literally dressed like a picnic table right now. I look down at my red plaid shirt and then back up to Brianna. She's not wrong. I feel the corners of my mouth begin to tick upwards and suddenly Mike Smet's voice is in my head again. Don't smile until June. I feel my body tense up. Don't crack jokes. Don't try to be funny. I take a deep breath. You have to be tough with them. That is the only way to gain their respect. I exhale. And then instead of listening to Mike Smet, I do the exact opposite. I do me. Wow, Brianna. She's a character in the book, y'all. She came ready with the fire this morning. Look, I may literally be dressed like a picnic table, but I'm also literally going to be your eighth grade teacher again next year if you all literally don't get started with this work right now. Brianna and the class erupt into laughter. I crack a smile. All right, I want you all to work in small groups, annotating for examples of literal language. Go ahead and get started. If you have any questions, just raise your hand and I can come over. Taryn's hand shoots up into the air. I walk over to him. Mr. Bellot, can I ask you a question? Of course. Okay, Mr. Bellot, when was the last time you had a girlfriend? Yeah, no, I am not going to answer that. You just look real tired and real lonely, Mr. Bellot. Real tired and real lonely. I'm walking away now, Taryn. You know you can talk to us, right? He calls after me. We're all here looking out for you. We just want the best for you, Mr. Bellot. Get to work, Taryn, I respond, chuckling as I walk away. Let us take the law of our sides. Let them begin. I will frown as I pass by and let them take it as they list. 
Jesenia and Christopher are standing facing one another in the center of room 242. All of the desks in the classroom have been pushed to the edges of the room and in their place stand 29 teenagers whose hygiene routines have not yet had a chance to catch up with their rapidly changing hormonal bodies. The end of the school year is rapidly approaching and the spring chill is giving way to the heat and humidity of summertime. Much to my dismay, but perhaps in service to the text, the air is thick with the stench of sweat, body odor, and feet mixed with the scent of Axe body spray, pink perfumes, and a distinct lack of deodorant. Jesenia continues on, her voice echoing against the eggshell-colored cinder block walls. Nay, as they dare, I will bite my thumb at them, which is a disgrace to them if they bear it. All right, I interrupt, jumping into the middle of the circle. Based on context clues, who can tell me what Samson means when he says, I will bite my thumb at them? A moment of silence, and then a hand shoots into the air. Yes, Terran, go ahead. Does it mean like... Does it mean like he's gonna insult them? Yes, exactly, Terran. Biting your thumb at someone in Verona is the same as flipping someone off in Fall River. A wave of snickers erupts throughout the classroom. From the center of the circle, Christopher blurts out, ha, next time I pass Miss Mullen in the hallway, I'm gonna bite my thumb at her. No, 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 I quickly interject. I am not trying to have you get me into trouble. I best not see no thumbs in no mouth. I am no great fan of William Shakespeare, but when I find out the final text of the year is Romeo and Juliet, I admit I get a little excited. I am, after all, what my students have begun to affectionately call basically a famous actor almost. Well, they said that once. They have since, anytime Mr. Bella gets a little loud and animated, which now is most days, taken to rolling their eyes and sighing, oh, Mr. Bella, why don't you just go be in a movie if you're gonna be that extra? Regardless of how much the students in room 242 are or are not enamored of my thespian tendencies, this is the first time I feel as though I can authentically take up space in the classroom. I know how to stand in the spotlight and be loud or funny, or in the words of my students, funny enough for someone who wears sweater vests. I know what it means to bite your thumb at someone. I know all of the jokes and innuendos that speak to a teenager's sense of humor. And I know how to teach stage combat using brightly colored pool noodles, which is why on day three of our Romeo and Juliet unit, the day after teaching a bunch of anarchist teenagers how to flip someone off Elizabethan style, I am standing in the corner of room 242, back pressed against the wall, keeping my distance from the 29 sweaty teenagers, choreographing the culminating fight scene of act one, scene one, and keeping an eye on the door, praying that Nancy Mullen doesn't come wandering down that hallway, wondering why her most recent hire has given a room full of kids foam noodles to whack each other with. I hear Brianna yell out, draw if you be men, and lunge at Taryn, whipping her noodle and giggling maniacally. I wince. That one looks like it stung, but Taryn laughs and slashes back. Across the room, Amber shrieks, do you quarrel, sir? And Alex hacks away at Christopher's arm. Walking around the room, I bump into Brendan Souza laughing breathlessly with his book in one hand and a bright lime green pool noodle in the other. He locks eyes with me. 
Mr. Bellot, Mr. Bellot, this is wicked cool. You know, if you just made English class like this all year, I'd be getting an A instead of a C. You know that, right? And I know he's not wrong. And I know his statement isn't an accusation, but still, I, I want to tell him that I'm sorry and that I think it is so cool that he is finally having fun in this room and that I am really proud of him. But instead, I, I just give him a half smile and keep walking. This room is chaos, more so than usual. But this time, I'm not trying to fight it. I'm just taking it all in. And it is beautiful. And it is magic. And in a weird way, it's kind of perfect. And outside of the window, the, the summer sun is hot and bright and the light is catching the white wave caps of the choppy Taunton River. And for a second, just a split second, I swear that I can see a pair of dolphins lacing in and out of the waves at the base of the faded blue steel columns of the Braga Bridge. This story was produced by Max Spitz, curated by Amanda Delheimer, and directed by Jess Hutchinson. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Jeffrey and Joan Goldwater, Katie and Peter Hauser, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.